Welcome to the Due Daily Podcast. I am Nick Boucher with Helios Quantitative Research. This show is designed to support financial advisors in the conversations that you are having with your clients. Each month, I'll be joined by Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel from our research team. We'll be taking a deep dive into recent and important events. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the April edition of the Due Dilly Podcast. I am your host, Nick Boucher, the Director of Marketing Operations at Helios Quantitative Research. Joined, as always, by the research team. Today, we got Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? This is Joe Mallon. Hey, guys. Jason Van Thiel. Right on, right on. And Jason makes three. Sweet. Well, we've got some fun topics to dive into today. We're going we're gonna to dive right in here, right off the top. Uh, recently, portions of the yield curve have inverted, uh, where the yields on some of the shorter-term U.S. bonds were actually higher than the longer term. A lot of people seem to think that this means that we might be about to head into a recession. Can uh, either of you guys talk to that and you know why people are used to it predicting a recession and things that you might see on the horizon for us? I mean... First and foremost, there's a lot of observational data in this regard. If you look at a chart, it's pretty apparent that if you graph the 10 minus two year spread, when it dips below zero, you have a recession not too long after that point in time. The exact number is probably within the dozen over the past 67 years in which it's happened. Often it kind of like double dips negative before we have the recession, but it's pretty apparent. And it's also a little cyclical too. There's every five, six, seven years that you have this inversion, which also kind of aligns with a recession. So there's a lot of debate out there, whether it's actually causation that an inverted yield curve causes a recession or whether it just happenstance. And I think the most recent example of that is really what happened in 2020. You know, the yield curve inverted in 2019. People are saying within the next 18 months, two years that we're going to have a recession. We did, but I don't think you can really draw a cause from the yield curve inversion. It's more of a pandemic that hit our global economy. So we'll talk more about really, you know, what does it mean this time around? But that's why that narrative is really floated out a lot in the media is because there is this observational data that has occurred in the past. Yeah. And when you take a look at it in prior instances where it's happened, the first time it's happened in kind of a series, a recession might occur in the next one to three years. So, you know, there's a pretty big variance between there. If something, if you're going to predict something that's, you know, three years out, what's really the the strength of that predictor? I think there's some question in there, but the total sample size of those events, you know, we've only had a handful of recessions over the last few decades. So the sample size is pretty small too. So I think it needs to be the accuracy of it, if you will, is is strong, but the total amount of calls that it's making is is relatively low. So there's a a little bit of grain of salt that needs to be inserted there. I feel like some of these headlines I've seen before, and I may have seen some of them from the exact same people, it feels like. I I could be crazy here, but it almost seems like you could have taken your prediction from 2019 and uh, dusted it off and presented it as new this year. It kind of seems like what you're saying is that we're we're spilling a lot of ink on the inversion, but the clicks more than the actual prediction seems to be the real motivator. Is that kind of what I'm hearing here? Yeah, it's a lot of folks on CNBC, right, that come out, they want to have something to talk about. You have this yield curve inversion, which is a pretty simple concept to convey to the public and how that's been a predictor of recessionary environment. So sure, it's there, but what do you do about it? One of the worst things you could do is use that as an indicator to just be defensive and say, every time the yield curve inverts, I'm just going to sit in cash till we have a recession. If you backtest that strategy, you miss out on a lot of return 
running up into the recession. So cool narrative, fine story, but we're talking multiple year periods of inversion leading into recession, then navigating through a recession. So what do you really do about it? I don't know. You have to look for other factors to actually make real investable decisions. And taking a step back, the concept of it is, you know, as you get longer out or kind of longer dated bonds, so say the 10-year U.S. government bonds, if those yields are lower than your shorter term, that generally the theory is that that's predicting kind of lower economic growth and lower yields in the future. So if that happens, then you have poor economic performance, and that's what's kind of triggering the, the prediction of the recession. What's notable in this instance is the inversion is really due to the short end of the curve shooting upwards as the Fed tackles the inflationary environment that we find ourselves in. So there is a little bit of nuance in this instance, you know, that's happened before, but generally it's because those longer end yields decline over time because there's a more pessimistic longer term outlook on the U.S. economy. That's a great point. Joe, would you agree that this yield curve is similar to past yield curve inversions that we've seen? I think it's a little different. Expanding on what what Jason said, it's we're in this environment where coming out of 2020, there was excessive Fed intervention and dropping rates all the way down to zero. And I think they're going to be pretty aggressive here on the way up. And the way that's just really come to fruition is they've de-escalated the buying of bonds on the longer end of the curve, which has kept longer term rates or, or had longer term rates rise slightly. But there's still a pretty large holding of longer term bonds on the Fed balance sheet. This time around, I think they've been more aggressive with the rhetoric that they're going to raise short term rates quickly. And we've seen that reflected in like the two year yield has shot up to about two and a half percent relatively quickly, where the long term yield has increased from below one up to about two and a half percent. But it's still partially supported by the Fed size of their balance sheet. And I think just this week, they'd come out and said that they're not going to slow down bond purchase, but they're actually going to sell off bonds on the balance sheet. And we should see the longer end of the curve increase. So as Jason described, real normal economic conditions and the concerns about an inverted yield curve, there's excess manipulation right now at the hands of the Federal Reserve that's causing this inversion, which could be the reason it's different this time. So somewhat cyclical inversion, but concerns may be overblown. I think that's right. And you just have to look at every one of these instances as unique. Would I bet that we won't have a recession within the next two years? That would be a a hard bet to make. But I don't think it's really going to be caused by this inversion that we saw over the past month. That's a solid transition into our next subject. We're going to dive into employment and wages versus sentiment. There does seem to be a disconnect between what the jobs market is telling us and where consumer sentiment has been going. With unemployment continuing to decline, the job market being hot and wages rising, uh, yet people are more and more concerned about their financial well-being more than at any point in the last decade. So what's, what's really going on here? Yeah, it's interesting because I think overall the economic data seems pretty neutral. You know, we do a lot of work on just taking a lot of indicators, both leading and lagging and trying to digest the overall state of the economy. And it's hard not to say that it's just middle of the road. But if you dig in, you can see some data points that are really strong, like you had talked about with employment and job openings, and some that are just terrible. And one of which that I think is really interesting is kind of a sentiment indicator. So there's this index called the University of Michigan Index of Consumer Sentiment. 
And what it does is it takes a survey of folks and scores their responses. And I'll just read the five questions really quick because I think it's kind of interesting. It says, we are interested in how many people are getting along financially these days. Would you say that you or your family are better off or worse off financially than you were a year ago? Next. Now, looking ahead, do you think a year from now you will be better off financially or worse off? Next. Now, turning to business conditions in the country as a whole, do you think that during the next 12 months we'll have a good financial time or a bad financial time? Next question. Looking ahead, would you say it is more likely that in the country as a whole, we've had continuous good times in the next five years or so, or that we will have periods of widespread unemployment or depression? And then the last question is about the things people buy for their homes, such as furniture, a refrigerator, stove, television, and things like that. Generally speaking, do you think now is a good or bad time for people to buy major household items? So the reason I read those, I think it just really gives you a clear picture on what they're trying to gauge with this sentiment indicator. And it's interviewing households. How do you really feel? Not necessarily how has your employment history changed? Do you have a job? Are you making more money? There's a little bit of that. Are you worse off for or better off than a year ago? But a lot of how do you feel the future is going to be? And this is a, this is this indicator that said hasn't been this bad since 2009 early 2009 during the great financial crisis. So I think that's very interesting. And, you know, part of that might be the inflation. Part of it might be a a timing thing where we're comparing it to exactly one year ago when the markets were going straight up. But regardless, it's telling that people don't feel that optimistic right now. And it's been on a downward spiral over the past year and a half. That's very interesting. And I'm I'm familiar with the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index. I've, I've heard of it before. I've never taken a deep dive, though, and actually looked at the questions that are in there. So forgive my ignorance here while I'm being educated on the subject. It's not just people in Michigan that are being surveyed, I'd imagine, right? This I'm assuming this is national families that are being asked these questions. Yeah, it's national. It's just conducted by the University of Michigan. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's what I assumed. But I just learned something today about it. I figured, hey, why not double up and learn two things? <laughs> no, they, they actually only interview Wolverines. Okay, okay. So X-Men specifically, that's fun. <laughs> uh, Jason, anything you'd like to add on the subject? Yeah. And, you know, with the questions that Joe outlined, they kind of break it down into two bigger component parts of what are people feeling about today? And what do people feel about the future. As you can tell from those questions, in the next 12 months, how do you feel, et cetera. And you see both of those declining over the last several months, but you see what's really fallen off is the expectations for the future. So, you know, as people are feeling the the sting of the inflationary environment that we find ourselves in with energy prices, food prices, et cetera, going up, you know, that's going to impact their sentiment regardless of the underlying data on the jobs market. Obviously the jobs and people's kind of feeling about their employment or prospects of employment weigh heavily on them, but so do their kind of just regular finances. So as things are hard to get, especially in the furniture world and their prices are going up, it's not terribly surprising that we're seeing kind of sentiment fall as rapidly as it is. But what's kind of notable is, as Joe mentioned, it's at the worst that we've seen in you know well over a decade. So kind of putting that on the backdrop of a hot jobs market is kind of an, an interesting kind of a yin and yang of where the economy sits right now. I think it's important to note too, like where the moves have been. So this index 
coming into 2020 was fluctuating. It has a number fluctuating between 90 and 100. So this is coming into the pandemic. It took a nosedive during the pandemic, which fully understandable, and it dipped below 80. Now, from there, it actually only creeped back up and almost touched 90, but it's been on a nosedive, like I said, over the past year, year and a half, and we're at 59 today. So I I say that just because one might take that data point and go, you know, we're screwed. I should not own any equities. We're going to head for a recession because of what people think. However, if you followed what people think over the past two years, you would have missed out on a lot of market return in a, a pretty low sentiment environment. So that's the point of a lot of these indicators. They're interesting, but just focusing on one, like the yield curve inverting or a sentiment indicator would be not wise to make investment decisions on. It seems like sentiment is down, but it's not alone. Bonds are down right now as well. But on the flip side of that, we have rates going up and it's left us kind of wondering, you know, what's next? And we're hearing from a lot of advisors that they or sometimes their clients are concerned with the losses in the bond market and with the rest of the year looking like more and bigger rate increases from the Fed. What might this mean for even conservatively positioned portfolios? Yeah, I mean, people aren't used to the bond market drawdown that we've seen over the past few months. You know, it's typically a pretty stable portion of their portfolio. They're not used to seeing kind of red ink spilled on their brokerage statements. But, you know, when we have the environment that we do where, you know, we have a high inflationary environment and the Fed is beginning to react more aggressively, um, that's changing a lot of market expectations about what the rest of the year is really going to look like. I mean, especially the next couple months as the Fed continues to have policy meetings and makes adjustments. So if we look at Fed futures market, those expectations have been changing rapidly over the course of the last really two months, where it seems, you know, week by week and, you know, statement by statement, those probabilities and those expectations shift quite a bit. As those expectations shift, bond prices and yields all kind of reset to whatever the latest expectations are. And as rates go up, bond prices go down. That's just kind of the mathematical relationship there. But as we've looked at, when yields go up, that's generally the best predictor of medium and longer term expected returns of that side of their portfolio. So there's kind of short-term pain, but there is a bright side to what that pain might bring. Yeah. And I think they're so related. And I find advisors struggling to have this conversation with their clients in a way that they can really understand. And the way I try to put it is the bond market peaked back in August of 2020 and is down mostly, you know, year to date, but over the past year and a half, about 10%. I'm looking at the Bloomberg Barclays Treasury Index. So back in August of 2020, if you held a you held a treasury bond index. Your expected yield at that point was half of a percent. So that means two a year and a half ago, you held this index and you're expecting to make about one half of 1% on your risk-free bond investment every year going forward. That's terrible, right? 10 years, you might get 5% return. That's awful. Where we sit today is at 2.6% on that same index. So if you held this index today, going forward, you're going to get 2.6% every year. Roughly over 10 years, you'll have 26% return. I like that later environment 
a lot better. And I'd rather be starting here. Now, to get here, we had to inflict some pain. So the trade-off from going from only earning half a percent every year to owning 2.6% every single year was a markdown in our bonds of about 10%. And that's just how they're related. It's simple math, but I think too many folks look at the bond market like they're trying to be a portfolio manager. Rates are going to go up. Bonds are going to go down. Yes, that is the relationship. You will take a hit in your bond portfolio. However, you're going to be compensated. You're going to be compensated going forward with more return on that bond portfolio. So that's why when we think about it, I often say it doesn't really matter. You can try to manage the the duration of a portfolio, which we do. So when rates are going up, you're not as exposed and maybe you take more duration once rates get there. That'd be a, a good strategy. But fundamentally, it's math and you shouldn't be overly concerned about it. You shouldn't run away from bonds. We should actually be a little bit glad that our retired type clients are going to be earning 2.6% here risk-free in the future versus the half a percent from a year and a half ago. And if you really kind of take the take that example and apply it to an individual bond, you know, if I'm buying a single bond and the issuer doesn't default, whatever returns I get from here to maturity are going to be the same, regardless of whatever the price action is from here to there. At the end of the day, I will get the coupon payment and my principal back. So especially as it relates to treasuries, presuming the U.S. doesn't decide to default on its debt, which I don't think you know there's a risk of, the end of the day return is going to be the same on that individual bond. There's just some kind of price action and some blood pressure rising that might occur from here to there. But at the end of the day, it's all going to equal out. That's a great point. And I think why you see a lot of advisors preferencing like bond ladders for their clients. And you you tend to see this as more, I don't know if experience is the right word or older clients that are accustomed to owning direct bonds. But I think many of them have that mentality. I own a portfolio of bonds in my portfolio. I don't care what they're priced at. Did they pay their coupon? Oh, they did? Great. I got my yield and then I'll get my money back when it expires. And that's how they fundamentally understand a bond. And that's important because that's how you should think about it. I think this gravitation towards bond funds, mutual funds, ETFs, people look at it as a tradable investment and look at every tick up, every tick down, when really under the hood, it's not any different than a complex bond ladder. So that's a great point, Jason. I think that's a way for advisors to really explain it to their clients that it's not a stock. Don't think of it like a stock fund. But think of it as this just recurring payment coupon mechanism where you'll get your money back at the end. If I'm reading between the lines here, it sounds like what we're saying is that the there is no alternative portfolio, aka the Tino portfolio, is alive and well. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, when you really break down the components of a diversified portfolio, you have your risky stock side and your more conservative bond side. And that's kind of the general structure. Increasingly in this environment, we're hearing from advisors wanting to find, you know, quote unquote bond alternatives. I mean, there are a few different ways that wholesalers try to market that in terms of, you know, liquid alts or structured products. But at the end of the day, like, unless it's a bond, like, it's not really a bond alternative. There's a very different sitting of, you know, where you are in the capital structure and how those funds operate and the liquidity of those funds that 
people shouldn't think of replacing bonds with some sort of cute, complex alternative. They're a really critical portion of a diversified portfolio that provides a ballast to a portfolio. And let's keep in mind that at one point in the pandemic, long-term treasuries were by far and away the best performing asset class. And that's after a decade plus of people talking about rates are going to have to come up from zero and there's going to be, you know, bonds are dead and there's going to be pain in the bond market. So there's still a critical portion of a diversified portfolio. Yeah, I, I echo that sentiment. We talk about it a lot, just trying to demystify the alternatives landscape. And, you know, I think of alternative risk premium, things like commodities or a trend following strategy. But when it comes to bond-like replacements, there's no free lunch in that world. Typically, if there's outperformance over risk-free rates, it's done so with risk somewhere. And I just get a little frustrated with commingled products because they claim some sort of superiority in their tactic, but there's not really anything there. It's just different layers of risk that they're putting into the portfolio. So it's really important to know what you're looking at. If, if dipping your toe into that universe and understanding that you could be layering up a bunch of risk in your client's account unknowingly and losing some of the dynamics of bonds that we really like. Always important to read the label and know the ingredients on anything that you're consuming. That is a great way to it. Right on, right on. Well, as always, gentlemen, thank you very much for the time today. Very insightful. Thank you very much, Joe and Jason. Appreciate both you guys very much. As far as looking forward for Helios, we're about a week into Q2 right now for 2022. And I don't want to let the cat quite out of the bag yet, but we have some very exciting stuff we're rolling out this quarter in the way of content coming to you, new pieces for you guys, some research-based stuff that we think is going to blow your lids off. We have some very fun events planned as well. So definitely keep an eye on the uh, keep an eye on our socials. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter as well. Keep an eye on us and keep an eye on your inboxes for more coming your way. And uh, in the meantime, hope you enjoyed the April edition of the Do Dilly podcast. We will see you guys next month. Helios Quantitative Research is a DBA of Clear Creek Financial Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Helios Quantitative Research itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, tax, legal, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where our firm and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by our firm unless a client service agreement is in place. Helios Quantitative does not work with individuals and therefore does not provide personal financial advice. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Helios Quantitative Research does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made or given by or on behalf of Helios Quantitative Research as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including indirect, indirect, special, or consequential loss of damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2022. Helios Quantitative Research, LLC. All rights reserved.